Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. The relationship between employers and their employees has evolved dramatically over the last two years, which has caused a trickle-down effect impacting everything from training to benefits. In the post-pandemic era, many organisations are becoming aware of the need for a more holistic and people-centred approach to benefit plans. Employees have new expectations and the companies who hope to attract and retain the best talent in a competitive market will need to keep up with these changes. In this episode, I'm sitting down with two very special guests, Ricky Turner, Director of Employee Relations at Facebook, and our very own Jack Mardak, co-founder of Oyster. During our conversation, we discussed how benefit plans have evolved since the pandemic first began, and how companies can continue to prioritize their people moving forward. I hope this special episode presents a new perspective on benefit plans and how we can all take a more holistic approach to this new world of work. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Ricky. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here on your world of work. Uh, to start us off, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and your career experience so far? Yeah, my name is Ricky Turner. I'm a human resources executive. I have over 20 years of human resources experience. I've worked for some really cool companies like Facebook and Nike and Whirlpool. I've worked for some smaller, cool companies like Oatska Pharmaceutical. I've been in HR all my career. I love it. I think that uh, without question, HR is the best job to have in any organization and that HR people are by far the most talented people in any organization. I'd be happy to tell anybody that wants to understand why that is so. I have dedicated my life to making work great for people. I've said before, and I think I'll always say it, life is too short to work at a job that sucks. And I am very blessed and fortunate, and I have an awesome responsibility to be in a place to make work less sucky. So I attack it fearlessly and with joy in my heart to try to make that happen for people. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And today we are very lucky that we have more than one guest on the show. So Jack, you want to introduce yourself too? Yeah, with pleasure, Reese. Thank you. And I'm Jack Mardak. I'm the co-founder of Oyster. Uh, so I met Ricky at the HR Transform Conference last month which was a brilliant event, by the way, fantastic energy and vision in the HR community right now. And seemingly all of it showed up in Vegas for HRT. So that was amazing. Ricky was on a panel called Modern Enterprise Caregiving Benefits, the Cycle of Life, which promised to be about, quote, 360 degree support for your people, end quote. And to answer questions like, what are the benefits that you need to consider to address the full life cycle from fertility to family planning to elder care? So this was some new topics for me. And I've been very interested in, in the bigger picture of benefits and employee wellness. It's a subject that I've become passionate about in the last two years. And so I checked it out. 
And I was uh, I was deeply moved by Ricky's humanity and his depth of understanding in this space that I had to connect with him. I, I waited in line with several other people who lined up after his panel just to talk to him. And uh, we, we spoke briefly uh, after that. And I'm so excited, as I said, to invite him to share his thoughts and his passion with our audience. And so welcome, Ricky. And thank you again. Wow. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. So, Ricky, I have to say, I think that was probably one of the most eloquent and, and beautiful ways I, uh, I've, I've heard it. I guess, a description of the work that you do. And I love how you immediately went to the mission. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. Maybe we can put some more words to that. What would you say is your overarching mission and your role and overall in your career? I think it was George Washington Carver. I went to school at Tuskegee, by the way. So I think it was George Washington Carver who said that no man has the right to be born, to live an entire life, and to die without having left behind some good reason for him being there. And the Cliff Notes version of that is, my life is about making other people's existence better. And that's been the overarching principle in my career. Every person I meet with, every time I have an interaction, I literally think, is that person better off after they met me than they were before they met me? And if they weren't, then I feel like I, I missed an opportunity to you know, bring something to someone's life. So in HR, I'm fortunate in that I get a chance to come in contact with lots of lives, either literally or figuratively. And so everyone that I've had an opportunity to support, I bring that energy to the job. Like, okay, how can I make this better for people today? What's one little thing? What's 1% increase? What's one turn of the screw, right? What's one other grain of sand that I can move that makes it just a little bit more livable and human to be in this place? And so that's the juice that I bring to my job everywhere I go. Fantastic. So kind of following on from that, you, you obviously started to talk about specific some of the specifics of your role as well. How would you say your overall philosophy when it comes to, to people operations, to your role, to the, to the function that you exist within? What would you say your overall philosophy is when it comes to that? It's going to sound really simple, but I think it's something that's overlooked. I treat people like humans, right? I, I treat them like fully grown adult people, not resources, not products, not widgets, people. And so in my career, I've been an HR business partner. I work in employee relations. And it's amazing to me sometimes how just through the everyday grind, the transactional grind of HR, getting payroll in and out, processing time cards, dealing with conflict, you know, helping leaders develop, sometimes we lose sight that on the end of that transaction is a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother or an aunt or an uncle. And they got a mortgage or a kid with braces or a child that takes dance class or a son that plays t-ball or a grandma that likes to bake. Like they're just, they're humans. And when you stop and you kind of bring that humanity to the workplace, you can find yourself in some interesting spaces in terms of conversation, right? You push HR from the transactional, right, to the bespoke. And I think that's kind of the trend that, that we're on right now. So to answer your question, that's a perspective I bring to work. I want to see people as human beings. And when I don't, and when I stop doing that, right, if, if I get to a place that I've gotten so calloused and so burned out and so jaded that you become just another employee ID on a spreadsheet filled with thousands of other employee IDs, I got to check myself because that's, that's really not how I'm built, right? I, 
I love people. And so that's, you know, it makes me happy to do that. Jack, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So I guess playing back some of the these things that Ricky's touched on, how do you see that relating to your role as, as one of the co-founders of, of Oyster? Well, Reese, as you know, Oyster was born right before the pandemic. You know, since then, I've been so excited to be able to observe the beginnings of positive change in a number of systems. HR is one of those systems. I want to actually take a quick tangent on semantics, which I know will be interesting to some of you in the audience and certainly to our host and my colleague and friend, Reese Black. I know there are some new words that feel like they fit better to describe the people function. The reason I use HR is because I think that when you want to change a system, it's very important that everybody recognizes the system you're talking about. Some of the newer terms, for example, at Oyster, as you know, the HR team is called workplace. Some of those terms may be less recognizable to some of the people you need to convince, right? So back to your question, though, right? So the the, the pandemic exposed two important things that are relevant to HR, that people, that employees need a bigger picture of caretaking from their employers, and that companies need to become much more deliberate in designing how they work. All kudos to you uh, in helping Oyster on that latter point. Right. And so we, we've been talking at Oyster about that opportunity for, call it a renaissance of HR, driven by that vision since the beginning. You know, and I keep wanting to talk about it because I think we're in a moment of true malleability in HR. And I want to give HR practitioners all the ammunition to seize the moment. And that's exactly where, where Ricky comes in, where, as I said, and was excited to introduce him, I think he's got some extremely relevant, some extremely important ideas to the questions, you know, what what can an HR by any name be and become in this next great version of itself? And that's my interest in it. And I hope to bring you know that message to what we're doing at Oyster, obviously, but also to to the world and you know, circle back to this podcast. Thank you very much. So the, the the point that Jack was mentioning and the the time that our company was born and the time that so many companies have had to change in during this pandemic phase. Kind of building off of that, why do you think it's even more important for company leaders to prioritize people in this post-pandemic phase that we're in now? I think the simple answer is that the viability of their enterprise depends upon the health of their people, the holistic health of their people, right? No people, no enterprise. That's the transactional answer. I think the largest societal communal answer is it's the right thing to do. Like it's what people, you know, it's what evolved humans do. You care for each other. So what the pandemic has exposed or accelerated or magnified has been the previous great rift, the great space between what we knew we should always be doing and what we were doing, right? The pandemic said, aha, got you. And so now you got companies going, okay, let me hurry up <laughs> and make this happen. And, and oh, people, yeah, that's right. They're number one, right? Not, not just on the, the logo, not just in our company vision statement, but actually they are number one, right? Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's the answer, right? No, no people, no enterprise. That's the transactional answer. And then just again, the social answer is, is what we do, man. That's, that's what humans do. 
so what starting to dig into things a little bit one of the points that jack mentioned was was where you two first met and the the subject matter that you were talking about at, at hr transform um one of those being around benefits and, and how that is obviously come to the forefront and is kind of taking on a new um significance a new importance and 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 how we deal with people that we have in our companies so when it comes to benefits, whether that be healthcare or, or dental or overall wellness, parental care has obviously become very, very important in, in all of this too, as well as other caregiving priorities too, just elderly care, for example. What do you think has changed when we, we talk about those particular things during the pandemic and why do you think that is? So I'm, I'm going to broaden the lens a little bit because it's easy to pin it all on the pandemic. The pandemic, in fact, was a large part of it, but there were a few more things that were happening in the country that kind of caused us to reevaluate what's happening. First thing is you had massive um, kind of social unrest, right? Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, you, you had all of that happening, right? And so people were reconciling that. You had a country and in fact the world that was wrestling with this uncertain political energy and, and entity, right? And so there was this reconciliation like, okay, what's actually happening here? And then you got this pandemic layered on top. You have an explosion in diversity in the workplace. You have a lot of energy around people identifying themselves and finding their space in the world. And then you get a pandemic, right? So it's just, it's this huge gumbo of energy that we look at the world through that lens now. And so what you'll find in benefits is that it's they're trying. I mean, something as boring as employee benefits is trying to respond to all of that energy because people bring that energy to the workplace. Right. The, the employee you got in 1980 is different than the employee you got in 2020. My dad showed up for work at Union Pacific Railroad, happy to have a job, worked there for 40 years, got a watch and was completely satisfied. Sent six kids to college, athlete, all of that. People that show up today are going, hey, man, that's not the deal. That, that deal doesn't work for me. And so it's through the, that lens, through the lens of all of that, that we are in evaluating kind of where benefits are. So, th th I mean, that's, that's what happened. That's how I see it. So I, I think you made a really good point there, that, that point that almost like the pandemic has become a little bit of a, a crutch, an excuse, uh, something that is, is distilling the, the topic down a little bit. I, I would actually be interested to follow that train of thought further in what was already happening these these shifts we were seeing in people's expectations and their priorities in life how do you think that would have went if the pandemic actually had never happened if there was just these fundamental changes that were happening already and the pandemic was never in the equation well um i think it still would have happened i think it would have perhaps been slower and the reason it would have been slower is because the things that I'm talking about that were already in motion affected primarily, and I hate this term, kind of marginalized people. The things that were happening affected black and brown people. It affected people from lesser wealthy backgrounds, right? Those things affected women, you know, were, were affecting women. So I think that the change would have happened, but I mean, let's let's be candid about it, right? Time is a privilege, right? It's, it's a weapon that privileged people use. And I think the pandemic kind of expediated all that time. It's like, nope, you got to make that happen right now. So yeah, that's the answer. I think, I think a change would have happened. I just think it would have been slower. 
Ricky's absolutely right when saying that there was this greater context in place already before the pandemic. And so that, I guess, forces or suggests a, a closer scrutiny of the exact mechanics of disruption that have proven so important, right? And so uh, to focus on companies, they're suddenly faced with a whole bigger picture of taking care of their people that is now not rooted in like contingency or insurance, which, you know, as an American, I've been a, a part of my conception of what it means to have benefits to be taken care of is that if, right, shifting from that if and contingency perspective to a more kind of present and continuous perspective, that is, if among many things, responding to the events and changing circumstances that we know are always happening in people's lives by you know, creating a pandemic that created a necessity for many organizations, if not most, a first responsiveness into that than they had ever given before. That's why it's so important, right? And then, of course, the disruption to how we work has been accelerated on a whole other frontier where, you know, it's not just evacuating the office physically, it's evacuating the paradigm of the office as part of releasing a new way of working for people that is the other piece that is now in the, in the hands of HR. I think it is the most exciting time to be in human resources right now for all of those reasons, right? All of the previously held to beliefs and models have been blown up, right? They, they've been proven to not be able to sustain you know, kind of what's happening. And so now you have this new group of really creative people in human resources and business leaders, right? Not, not just HR, like they're great business thinkers out there going, okay, this is my issue. How, how can I get at this, right? And it's just, a, it's the end of an era and it's the beginning of a new one. So it's going to be undoubtedly noisy and crunchy and squishy and messy. But I think the product will be a workplace that is more inviting and suitable for everybody, absolutely everybody. You know, right on that sort of more practical frontier of things, among the deeply resonant things that I heard you talk about on that panel was the description of a circumstance, of a situation that a particular individual employee can be in that is so transformative of their experience, of their situation as an employee that it really requires uh, from at, at least the, you know, the, the employers that want to do it the best way they can, requires awareness and possibly a response. So you know what I'm talking about. And it is a culturally rooted situation where, as you put it, you might be the whole person in that family slash community that has the job. Right. And as a son of immigrants, uh, I, I, I was very resident and it blew my mind because it was, a, it was an example of a situation that an employer ought to be aware of and, and responsive to. So I would, would love you to tell us more about that. Sure. And also to suggest, you know, what are the other circumstances that employers need to be thinking about right now that they haven't in the past? Yeah. So one of the things that's happened in the pandemic, remember, you have, you have a more diverse workforce now than you ever had, right? And you had a pandemic that stressed that workforce. So 
things that were heretofore not talked about in the workplace suddenly got pulled to the front and needed to be dealt with. So, for example, it's not uncommon in black and brown communities where you have larger extended families where out of the multitude of siblings and aunts and uncles and all of that extended family, there is perhaps only one or two people that have the type of employment situation that the rest of the extended family recognizes as the job. And that's not to belittle the roles that the others in the family have, but that's a unique dynamic, I think, amongst black and brown families especially larger ones. Hey, the one person has the good job. Everybody else part-time or doing something perhaps not that they you know, that they don't want to do, but there's a one person with the good job. And what that means for that person is that a disproportionate amount of the burden for the family can feel like it falls on their shoulders, right? They either feel that way or it actually is or some combination of both of those. And in the past, People in those spots have worked quietly behind the scenes to alleviate that pressure. The employer never knew about it. Then the pandemic happened and everybody went home and it turned over the game. And now that person's going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Not only am I dependent on this job and this income, but my grandma who stays with us and my uncle who's down the street and my four or five brothers and sisters who are underemployed and my mom and dad and my family are dependent on me doing well in this new job that's changing. And I don't know how to handle it. So what happens? They bring that trauma to the Zoom meeting, right? They bring that trauma to their blue jeans. Like, it has to show up. It's got to have a place to go. And ultimately, where it lands is in HR. And the person goes, for lack of better terms, I need help. Now, it may not be verbal, I need help. It may be a behavior that's going off, right? Why was this once great employee all of a sudden struggling? Like, what's happening here? And they lose the fear of talking about this very personal family relationship. And they're now saying, employer, help me. Employers have thought, what is like, from a point of privilege, like that doesn't happen in in their homes, right? Everybody in their home, right? Statistics say college educated, high individual wealth, that dynamic may or may not, may not happen. But now you got an employee that's saying, not just employees, lots of employees saying, you got to help me. And so I think employers have been, have been facing unique problems from diverse groups that previously would go untalked about, right? Which is why, again, it's messy, but I think it's cool. Like the pandemic is forcing you to see people as people. Benefits are not one size fits all. You got your HMO, you got your $5 copay, off you go. No, 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 no. I got a kid standing in my house that's not my child, but I'm taking care of them. You got to deal with that. I got a grandma live with me. You got to deal with that, right? I have a, I have a cousin with Alzheimer's that's lived, like, you got to deal with that. I got student loan debt that's creating, ten- you got to deal with that. All of that stuff is now on the table and the best employers are not shying away. They're going to bring it. We got the best minds. We're on top of it. Employers that are reticent to change will slowly find that they lose their best and brightest people. And it'll take them a little while to retool. But the best employers are saying, bring that. We got something for that. Let's fix that together. So that's the situation, Jack. Thank you for bringing that up um, because we deal with that, right? Even more importantly, and I'm going to big up HR here. If you don't have the kind of HR function where people feel comfortable talking about it, then that trauma goes unresolved because they can't find any place to get an outlet. Right. If you have one of those old line militaristic leadership groups where you don't talk about private stuff at work, 
then that trauma goes unaddressed. Right. So employers, again, that have been reticent to become contemporary in the HR space may be missing out and you may be seeing symptoms of a larger problem wrestling with how to fix it. So HR people like get on your game, like put that humanity out there, be vulnerable, talk to people as people, not as accountants, not as engineers, not as operators. Again, as moms and dads and brothers and sisters and people that are buying groceries where you buy groceries and all of that stuff, little league coaches. Because you, people need a place to kind of unload that problem and work through it. Does that make sense, Reese? I know it's kind of... Of course, 100%. Um, like, how do I tactically actually make moves towards this? Like, what, what, would you, what advice would you give to someone listening to this on this topic? How do they make steps forward to progress? So there are a couple of steps I would advise. The first thing is get into your data. I'm not talking about on the surface, averages and means. You have to get an accurate portrait of the people that work for you. So if you're large enough, a large enough entity, and you do an engagement survey, all of the survey companies can help you paint profiles of the picture of the people that work for you, that give you insight into actually who the person is, right? So it's beyond uh, do they like being here, but you can get zip code. You can get a lot of data that tells you this is actually who I have in this enterprise and where they are in life, right? I promise you, if you're in a large company, you can ask your 401k advisor how many people have loans out. I bet the number increased over the pandemic. What does that tell you? Like, if that's the data that you got to get into. Get into your data. Get to know your people. If you are a smaller company, leverage your HR team. Give them tools so that they can get to know their people. And then open up. Extend some grace and listen. And the ideas may be new or different or uncomfortable, Right or novel, and it's okay. You got to create a space for innovation so that you can begin to pivot to things like that. Thirdly, man, there are a lot of articles, resources, studies out that give you information that you need. I think, I, 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 I mean, I, if you just, if you Google or you go, go search, you'll find there are scholarly articles, scholarly journals, there are studies that are done by the larger, the larger insurers. Like people are aware of this. And so you can get into that so that you can understand that. Those, are, those would be a few of the things that I would recommend. I'm also going to say this. Like everything, there will come a time where you lose the ability to say that you didn't know you needed to make a change about something, right? Like, that's, that's going to happen, right? You can't, you can't say, well, we didn't know, right? No, like that excuse will go away. It may not be this year. Maybe it'll be next year. Right. But you won't be able to argue that you didn't know. People will not look at that as being honest in your response. So I would encourage employers to be about the business of looking at their employees with fresh eyes. Brilliant. Ricky, all, all that I would add to that is in the case where you're talking about organizations where HR may not have the power or the authority to make some of these changes and put some of these things in place that, that, that they should aggressively petition for it. And also to those to whom they would make those petitions, respond and give HR the power it needs to create the future of work and, and take care of people. Great point, Jack. Great point. So I, I want to continue on one, one point that we, we started to touch on there, which is 
Differences in needs by demographics, I guess, is one way you could put it, right? So, so you were talking about black and brown households, and you know we can slice and dice it in, in, in various different ways. And, and Jack, I'd also love to get your thoughts on this too, from the perspective of we have various demographics in this company as a distributed company with people around the world, right? Whether it's from more collectivist societies, a, a whole bunch of other dynamics play into this. How would you say that the the demands when it comes to benefits, when it comes to support and, and different personal aspects of people's lives changes by, I guess, by generations. So this, this is a generational change, right? This is a systemic change through the workplace. What, what will this look like on a generational basis? And also, as of right now, we have multiple generations in the workplace. What's, what is, what's that looking like? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a statistic the other day because it is generational. And so you have to, the, the, the previous thinking was my parents' generation, the greatest generation, you know, baby boomers, right? And then I'm a Gen Xer. And so the previous thought amongst Gen Xers was that, hey, man, we're going to be overrepresented amongst caregivers because our parents were baby boomers and there are more of them and they had less children and da 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 da. What the data also indicates, however, is that millennials are a big chunk of that. Right. And as a Gen Xer, I was like, what? Millennial? But actually, no. Right. I was reading a study that said like 83 percent of adult children over the last two years have actively sought for extended care or adult care for their parents. Right. Like they're looking for it other than and this is a cool thing other than the nursing home. Right. Nursing homes during the pandemic became less viable choices. Right. So what am I going to do with my mom and dad? Twenty percent of those people looking are millennials. And I think that kind of like, whoa, okay, what's happening there and why is it happening? So I think across generations, there will be some different needs, but there will also be some overlap. The other benefit that I uh, will bring attention to again, I said it before, is like the student loan debt. Look, 20 years ago, that was kind of the cool boutique thing to talk about. Oh, no, no, it's very much a necessity now. Like, right? And to give credit where credit is due, the energy behind that is with millennials. Like, yo, you got to fix this student loan. Like, they ask a very real question. Like, how ridiculously expensive is college tuition? Simple question, big implication, right? And so that's happening right now, and that's driven by a demographic. So I think as you look across demographic slices, different things will jump out. I caution you to not overlook where they overlap, like with parents' care and things like that. Uh, Jack, I'd love to hear your thoughts, particularly from the perspective of the company we are within. I've been looking at it in, in a couple of different layers, right? And so the first layer is, is like the long view of the evolution of employment and what work even is in our lives. And uh, I mean, it, you, could, you could trace that back thousands of years or you could trace it back just a couple of hundreds of years and call it modern employment. But like for you know, for to whatever your phenomena or original state you attribute it, employment is coming from a place of weak power for workers incrementally to a place of greater power for for workers, and 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 the world is convulsing and adapting uh, in that trajectory in, in in meaningful ways, and I think we've absolutely seen an important event in that long, long-term uh, evolution, right? So, so um, and it's obvious things, as, as Ricky said earlier, there, the, there were those grievances and issues were already in place, 
right? Uh, mainly this was just a kick to the system that provided just enough, you know, disruption for the, the opportunity to do things differently, you know, a, a sustained disruption, right? Uh, fascinating in, in all of human uh, experience. So that's, that's one layer. The other layer is the generational layer where I think I've observed like, and it started to feel a little silly to me, how rigid we seem to be making these philosophical and perspective differences between, you know, the quote, various generations. I'm also Gen X like you, Ricky. And, and, and at times it's like, that's not me. Or, you know, even at times, well, maybe that's a little bit me. And it's kind of funny and uncanny. But I think I, I, I started to question the value to the collective of that kind of rigidity of thinking. And so I was becoming a little bit suspect of that whole framework of like trying to divide us all into these big categories and sort of dispense of us. The importance of that became evident when I think it was revealed that millennials whose you know, story was disaffection about work, you know, being checked out, being you know, too entitled, et cetera, they were revealed by the, the disruptions of the pandemic to be merely ahead of the curve in looking to the workplace for things that a lot of us hadn't even thought to want yet, right? And so, and so that, that recharacterized to me the whole separation between the generations and suggested that the millennials and, and others you know, following were ahead of the curve in looking critically to the work experience and, and having the audacity to demand more. I think that's spot on, and I salute them for that. I think we would be unwise to not heed them. You, you remember in the Bay Area, right, there were all of these, and, and I'm talking about like back in the 90s when the dot-com started going, and they started offering all of these benefits that we previously thought were kind of crazy. Groceries and haircuts and massages and car washes and dry cleaners, right, and restaurants on site. And you remember like on-site childcare, like how woo, like how just like, you know, space age that was. That was like 10, 15 years ago. We thought that that was like crazy. Look, look like, look what's happened today. That's standard. That, those are table stakes. Like you can't even start the conversation unless you can address those things. And it's the energy of millennials that are going, hey man, the deal has changed, bro. Like, what was good for my mom and dad is not good enough for me. And they got the goods. Like they're super sharp and they can deliver and they're adaptable and flexible and resilient. So, I mean, that's where the answers are. I think Jack's right on with that, right? I always look at that. And I guess I'm at that age. I can look at it over time now. And I kind of chuckle like, wow, like look at that change just like that, right? Don't you love it when you get a chance to learn and see the, the power of history? Yeah. So that leads into another question that I had. So this idea that, uh, as you were saying, uh, millennials may have been ahead of the curve. Maybe their demands seemed outlandish at one point, and 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 now they they seem perfectly reasonable. And with hindsight, you could see that coming. Let's project that forward now. We look backwards. Let's project this forward. So, what do you think will will be the same things that need to be looked out for? What are, what are your predictions? What are your thoughts for for the the next ten, fifteen years, five, ten, fifteen years? I've long felt that the long arc or the long evolution of the workplace is that entities will become more and more human the older that they get, right? So they went from being machines 
to now they're starting to respond and behave like humans. And so let's talk about what that means. That means by and large, there are no kind of wholesale responses to individuals. There will be individual responses. And you can see that, right? The way organizations gather data now, their responses to you are becoming more and more customized based on your behavior. The same thing I think will happen with employees. Also, I think that that barrier between work life and home life, the, the barrier that defined our moms and dads and our grandpas, right? And that, that's not even a veil anymore. Like there, is, like, there is no separation between work and home. It's intertwined. It's, it's, all to, it's one thing. And so the other thing that will happen is that organizations will become much more available to people so that they can present to them their unique issues, even when the issue doesn't have an out-of-the-box answer. And it requires a little bit more thinking and a customized response, right? Again, I keep going back to the 70s and 80s. That's the era of big employee handbooks, lots of rules, the IBM dress code, right? Blue suits, gray suits, da-da-da-da-da-da. Now companies don't really have handbooks, right? The, the, the edge is to have a, as small a handbook as you possibly can because you want to be able to address issues individually with the overarching thought being, we're going to try to treat everybody fairly, but fairly doesn't mean the same, right? We want you to have equity and be involved, but it doesn't mean that you get the same response to your issue as everyone else will have. Finally, the biggest thing that I think will happen Look, my parents' generation didn't trust their employers, and for good reason, right? My generation, like the, the, the trust between employers and employees, we might have thought it was there, but it wasn't there. And that's because employers have long done things that told us that they didn't trust us, right? They used to tell you, you couldn't work from home because I didn't trust you, right? Now that's gone, right? So I think as they evolve, the relationship between the employer and the employee becomes much more intimate. There's trust built up um, because the employer now will become way more dependent on new employees that are beginning to leverage their space in the workplace. And it's going to impact benefits. Financial wellness benefits used to be kind of a boutique thingy, right? For high-end employees, perhaps they had stock options. No, 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 no. If you can't help your accountant balance their budget, they bring that to work. That impacts what happens at work. Right. If you can't help mommies and daddies figure out how to make groceries, that impacts work. Mental health benefits used to be something that you did. Right. You get three visits to go here. Well, no, it may not be three visits and it may not just be me. It may be people in my household that are not related to me that I have accountability for. So the benefit needs to accommodate that. Right. And if your benefit does, then you got me as an employee. If it doesn't, I'll go someplace that can accommodate that. Like all of those fringe things, I'm usually fringe in air quotes because they're fringe now, but five years from now, they'll be standard issue. All of those things, I think, are going to evolve in that space. What I would add is that I think the construct of employment itself has to continue to evolve in the direction of a lot more flexibility where, as, as Ricky said, trust will be a significant new guider of, of the right relationship. And by the, the construct of employment, I mean, I don't know if you, if you noticed, but a couple of months ago, there was an interesting news blip that came out of a Reddit subgroup that was dedicated to, like, no work, right? And this is, like, where, where people who, who want to abolish the concept and a moderator 
got himself uh, invited to uh, a certain media outlet. And I, I think it was a, a fairly rightward leaning media outlet as well. And so I, I think it got torn apart and there was a it was a it was a news blip. And I thought, well, it is interesting that we are interested as, as much as we seem to be in this opinion, in the greater context of what is happening at work, where people are saying no to the office. And look, we even have some people saying, you know, no to work altogether. And, and that to me and, and seems to be fueling a lot of the paranoia, a lot of the lack of trust that is out in the world right now about what it is people really want, right? And so, and, and unfortunately, I think this individual representing the no work movement got transformed into a lamb for uh, what, the, what, 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 let's just call it, you know, the worker uh, employer rights, uh, you know, that side of things saw as particularly threatening about the moment that we're in, you know, as regards employment. So I, I think, uh, you know, that that has to be overcome with humanity and a lot of organizations just won't get it and, you know, sadly won't be able to muster that. And that is too bad. And I think that they will find it very, very hard to employ in the future. But I, I should think that in the future, we, we should have more open answers to questions like how many jobs do you have and, and what is the nature of your commitment to this particular employer? And this new flexibility will be will be comparable. We all remember gig work, right? And I think gig work was important because it explored the flexibility of the arrangements. In that case, as we learned, as we later corrected for, you know, too much in favor of the employer side to the detriment and things like benefits and consistency for the worker side. But, you know, we integrated that. And so I think in the future, we'll have new examples of flexibility, but that are more reflective of what the employees want. So to bring us home, I want to ask a question that we always ask everyone on the podcast. I don't want to put pressure, but I have a feeling we're, we're going to get a great answer. So the question is, what's the best mistake you've ever made and why? Wow. <laughs> Interesting, because there are a lot of different ways I can go with that. In my personal life, <laughs> the best mistake I ever made was that I cut a lady off in traffic who ultimately ended up becoming my wife of 20 years. So that's been a pretty cool mistake that I made. From a career standpoint, I thought it at one point was a mistake to kind of leave companies to try to find something different to do or to leave industries. Like I thought that was not only I thought, my parents thought. Right. My very first job was with General Electric, like long time ago. And for my mom and dad, right, people of that generation, if you got a job with any company that had like general or standard in the title, like you stayed there until you died. Right. That was it. And so like leaving to go do different things, I thought was a mistake. It's been the best thing that's ever happened to me. I've worked in a lot of different industries with some really cool employers and I've managed to learn an awful lot. And it's shaped my career. So Again, millennials don't think anything of that. But for Gen Xers, that was kind of a, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're leaving? Like, that was probably one of them. Fantastic. Jack, what about yourself? Uh, I would say uh, overreacting to uh, a breakup when I first moved from New York to the Bay Area. I was dating someone, and we'd already carved out some vacation getaway time together. And we wound up canceling the trip because we broke up. And so I still made use of that time by getting in my car and exploring the close environs of the, of the Bay Area, which included uh, Yosemite. 
And so uh, that overreaction, which is to take to the road with a lot of passion and perhaps too much heat and folly, led me to the edge of a cliff in Yosemite and indeed beyond, where I fell uh, some 11 feet into uh, a, 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 a very shallow pool of water. It was not so shallow as to entirely break the fall, but shallow enough to sort of mitigate injury you know, to the extreme. I did not die. Uh, and uh, I proceeded to, uh, you know, pass out in a 7,000 foot elevation and be rescued by an incredible team of women uh, EMTs that because it was nighttime and they could not helicopter in, scaled the mountain that I had stupidly, New Yorker that I still was, wearing linen <laughs> shorts and flip flops, found myself on at that elevation, saved my ass and, you know, uh, it gave rise to a bunch of perspective shift <laughs> that, is, that is proven, that is proven really, really useful. So that's that's my mistake. Oh, man. Great story, Jack. That's a fantastic story. And I, I, I was I was definitely correct that we were going to get some fantastic answers there. Thank you so much, both Jack, Ricky. Pleasure having you on the podcast. Man, thank you guys for having me. This has been a blast. Talk soon, Ricky. What a great discussion with Ricky and Jack. We've covered a lot of ground today, but here are three key insights I'll be taking away from this episode. First, the events of the past two years have taught us many important lessons about work, life, and humanity as a whole. The line between work and life has become increasingly blurred, which has reminded us of the need for a holistic, customized, and above all, human approach to people operations. Second, the relationships between employers and their employees are evolving to become much more intimate and trusting than they've ever been in the past. Gone are the days of employee handbooks and strict dress codes. Workplaces are now being built on a solid foundation of trust and integrity, and benefit plans are changing to reflect this shift. And finally, the large-scale societal changes that have been set in motion over the past few years have given us all an opportunity to reimagine the world of people operations completely. As it stands, the industry is highly malleable and ripe for disruption, which means it's a perfect time for us to get creative, share new ideas, and usher in a brighter future for everyone. Thank you for listening to New World of Work the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.